All right, and welcome to episode one of Keeping It Real Estate in LA. This is your host, Daniel Sanchez. I am a 20-year veteran of real estate in both commercial and residential. I've done investment real estate. I've done buying and selling in all segments of the actual residential marketplace, which includes luxury real estate and anything from your first starter home all the way up to your 30 to $50 million mansions. But I've cut my teeth for the past I would say 12 years or so in commercial real estate, working with investors, working directly with owners, people who have done this for decades, properties that have passed down from generation to generation and have entered many different portfolios, new construction, development projects all over Los Angeles. And that's pretty much where I've been for the past few years. I've worked with a lot of investors who've actually entered the LA marketplace from abroad and including some investors who've come as far as Japan, Australia. I've had people come from Europe. I've had some people, a lot of people from the East Coast that have seen opportunity and growth here in the LA basin. Those are the investors that I typically work with a lot. But overall, the business has been pretty interesting to say the least. And for those of you who've actually been in the marketplace since, let's say, 2002 to 2003, when things really began escalating, luxury real estate took off once again. And the other thing that I noticed was coming into the business as a very, very young 21-year-old agent and then becoming a broker at the age of 26 and developing a company that catered to investors and worked with a lot of property owners who were either new to the business or actually getting into the business or growing their portfolios. A lot of, a lot of the transition that's happened in the past, I would say, I don't know, maybe 20 or probably 30 years as a whole in the industry, I've captured a good chunk of it just in the witnessing of it and taking part in the business growing my own business and at the same time working side by side with other investors, brokers, and analysts, consultants. So I think it's a good time for me to actually step into a space where I can actually share some experiences with an audience and with people that are like-minded and also want to explore what it would be like to be an investor. I think that for most people who haven't done this before, it all comes down to figuring out specifically if you are adverse to taking a large risk, if you are in a wealth preservation strategy type of niche, or if you're just somebody who likes to take bigger bets. And if you do take bigger bets and decide, hey, I think this is a good asset, finding the basis and the reasoning for how you assessed a property or a development deal or some sort of an acquisition potential and decided to scrub this thing thoroughly and say to yourself, hey, I think I might want to stack some heavy chips into this deal, right? A lot of people don't understand that the components to make a good investment range from not only having an experience, but I hate to say, like you, you, you've got to maybe lose on an investment once or twice in your life to really understand if you're making a smart decision moving forward. So for those of you who are considering jumping in, I think I might be able to shed some light on just at least from an actual experienced person who does this day in and day out, what you should be looking for, what things you should avoid, 
Also, if you've ever thought of saying to yourself, hey, I think a lot of the investment opportunities that I get passed over are people that are in different positions or different tiers of investments that maybe say, hey, we're going to pass on this deal because A, this is too small for us, or B, uh, you know, the initial investment is too steep, or maybe because, you know, liquidity is a problem. Some people source their liquidity and their their capital from people that are close to them. And some people have to go through traditional sources like banks. So what does that really mean at the end of the day? Does that mean that you're you're not able to do something because you're new to the business? And even though you may have found a good deal or you're able to take a property off a family member's hands or somebody you know, there there's... There's a lot of solutions, right? I mean, there's very specific solutions, but there are alternatives. A lot of people feel like it's such a huge endeavor and it's a, it's kind of a fearful thing to think about. Like, hey, I'm going to try to buy a fourplex. I'm going to try to buy 10 units. I'm going to try to buy a 20-unit building, but I don't have enough money to put the deal together. So what do I do now? So I'm really speaking more to people who are looking to invest in multifamily because that's really, at the end of the day, where my head lies and where my where my experience really lies and pretty much fundamentally even though I've done everything in the business top to bottom I think that this is where the most opportunity to start from a very very basic position very very standard path to follow you you'll, you'll have some opportunities as they come along but I think the the biggest thing to take away from any conversations that from here on out, I decide to bring to you guys and, and put on the table for you guys to sort of break down is really just to know yourself and know that the the investment side of everything is just part of the process, right? The other part of the process is staying on top of the business. Obviously, when you're investing into something, you want to save money. You want to invest efficiently, effectively. You want to be able to say to yourself, where are all of the exposures in a potential deal, where are they? What are they looking like? Who Who's gonna help me navigate this? Who's gonna say, hey, if I look too deep into this deal and I find something, what's my recourse here? What do I do? Do I have enough legal protection? Do I have enough in the way of maybe just somebody who can consult? And, and also, you know, things that need to be expedited because sometimes we run into hurdles. Sometimes we know getting money isn't the easiest thing to do. Or sometimes the bank will maybe not necessarily see the deal the way that you do. You may underwrite it to a certain potential, but conservative banks don't look at it that way. Conservative banks stick to their numbers. And if you don't have a great relationship with a specific bank, that can present a lot of problems. So one of the things that hopefully we can touch on and we'll have plenty of conversation with this and along with having guests is we'll talk about small opportunities, mid-size opportunities, large-scale opportunities, partnerships. Um, you know, we'll, we'll run the gamut with things. And I'm going to want, obviously, some feedback from you guys as well to see if you guys also have any requests on topics that we can talk about and discuss. But sort of just to touch base with, you know, anything and everything going on in the markets, I think that Right now, with everything going on, the standstill in certain marketplaces for investors or precautions that are being taken, obviously, there's a lot of pro-tenant activity in terms of, let's say, for all intents and purposes, if you have delinquent tenants, you're sort of writing that out right now because there's moratoriums in certain cities and certain parts of the state, even across the country, where 
evictions can't happen right now, for example. We, we're going to dig deep into all of the potential pitfalls. And this isn't necessarily just to isolate the, the do-gooders and the people that take advantage of situations, but it does help to know from an inside perspective what I'm seeing on a day-to-day basis and what other professionals, what other investors have to deal with, because it's nice to know that you have something that's creating value and you're, you're maybe looking to build a portfolio or somehow build your wealth in a different strategy or, or this type of investment vehicle might be something that you look forward to doing. But, you know, when you're bleeding capital because you're either not getting your income from a unit that's decided to not pay rent, or if you've got a situation where you've got exposure due to some capital investment that needs to be placed into a building that's dilapidated, or you need to work on your units as they go vacant and you want to turn a unit and obviously maximize the potential for income, those are investments that you need to make wisely and you need to make those things strategically. So we can cover all of that. I'm happy to have plenty of discussion with this with you guys, but the opportunities are things that you actually need to look for. There is a lot of competition, so I won't say that you guys are going to have an easy time finding deals. A lot of deals will present themselves on the MLS, multiple listing services, through brokers. Obviously, you'll find some off-market deals. You may speak to a neighbor who knows somebody or a property manager. There's so many ways to find a deal. As you find these deals, you start realizing, hey, like, you know, the more I sniff around, the more I'm going to find stuff, right? Every time we go looking for something, especially when we really want to do something, nine times out of 10, you're going to find an opportunity to at least consider and entertain. But overall, if you guys have any specific questions about anything that you're either doing now or have thought about or have seen, happy to answer all of that and cover that in a different episode. But just keep in mind that since this is something that is ongoing and this business never ceases to really slow down, even in the face of any sort of situation that crashes the economy or slows things down, The biggest thing or the biggest hurdle I can say just in seeing this for a couple of decades now is really just if there's constraint on capital, if capital flows are are reduced, if banks stop lending, if you have issues with being able to find contractors and and actual tradesmen that that can actually come in and work with you because they're the lack of actual trained professionals, it's, it's kind of a scary thought, but Imagine needing a plumber who can come and, let's say, repipe an entire building, right? Because one of the biggest undertakings, if you're going to buy a building, especially if you're buying it old and, and let's just say it hasn't been touched in over two decades, three decades, you're dealing with galvanized plumbing, you're dealing with possible pipes that have been burst, that have bursted and have been replaced with not, not the latest that you need to use in terms of what's required by the cities and, and building and safety, you know, you've got to be, you've got to at least figure out a way to cut the cost down on all of that stuff. Right. So, you know, experienced tradesmen who can come and work on a building right now, there's a scarcity issue with actually having people who have the experience to handle properties of larger calibers and not just like your, your plumber who can come fix a backed up toilet in a residential property. We're talking like experienced tradesmen who can come in as a company. And if you're going to do a trade, let's say plumbing, you want to get the plumber to come in and do all, let's call it a 10 unit building. You got a plumbing issue. You got to repipe the entire building. That's probably the most expensive 
um, capital expense you're actually going to put towards a building. And, you know, unless there's something even more detrimental or something that's going on that's even more of an issue under more of an underlying issue, then you got to deal with that as well. But the biggest thing I can say right now is finding skilled trade tradesmen right now in the business. Those are right now, you're not going to find them as easily as you would, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, just because the demand is so high, there's not enough of them. And you're probably spending a little more money on average per contractor. So that's that's just something to consider. And that could be on a small scale, four unit building, right? You've got a unit, uh, four units that you, you bought, all the tenants move out, whatever the case is, you decide, hey, it's time, we're going to repipe this entire building. We're going to go through all the trades, plumbing, electrical, mechanical. You're going to, let's say you want to do roofing. Let's say you want to do something with the foundation. Let's say, you know, even earthquake retrofit in LA and California, there's certain things that you've got to be in compliance with, right? So as you go through the trades and as you start spending money, put capital towards all of these capital costs, as they call them in the business for each trade, the, the hope is you find a general contractor who can basically find subs who can get all this stuff done for you at a reasonable price, right? And then a key component to the business is going to be finding relationships or building relationships with contractors, building relationships with bankers. We'll cover a lot of these topics individually in different episodes moving forward, but I'm just giving you guys sort of a general overview of what to expect. So anybody who's jumping into a real estate investment type of vehicle or model or plan, someone who's thought, of them, thought to themselves, hey, look, it's, this is a nice little nest egg I've built. It's like a 1.5% bank rate that I'm trying to beat here. What can give me a better return than the bank rate? And I hate to say it, but almost any other asset can. So that being said, now you have the risk of going out and borrowing against a property, which you're now responsible for creating value. So creating value is the, the ultimate component of buying that income stream when you buy a building, right? We don't buy the asset and say to myself, say to yourself, hey, I just bought a four unit building. The building is worth this. It's really what the income stream is worth. And that's what it's worth to the lender, right? There's all kinds of different underlying issues that you've got to consider when buying property that's let's call it 50 percent below market value right you've got to look at okay well what am i dealing with i'm dealing with tenants that are paying below market rate rents are they living in conditions that would be subject to let's say having you know that rent be what it is because there were never improvements done or very minimal improvements or, or whatever you want to call it so tracing each step saying to yourself hey what are we buying What's this investment for? Is this a short-term bet? Am I just getting in, creating the value, reappraising this thing and taking out my equity, moving on and buying another deal? Or is this something that's going to be a long-term play? Something that you can say, hey, I look at this thing as a 10, 20, 30-year investment. Or maybe I just want to keep this and build a portfolio of 20, 30 properties, right? First things first. Figure out what you're looking to do. Figure out if you're using capital for one or the other, because there is a possibility that you might dabble in both ends of that business. You might be able to do some wealth preservation strategy and keep a lot of the properties that let's just say you like because they're in better areas, that they generate better income potential. Now you've got properties that you're in one tranche with, 
but let's just say you are syndicating or you're borrowing money from family or you're working with a partner and you want to burn in and out of deals as fast as possible, right? So you look at things like like bridge to perm financing, which typically on average you can get anywhere between 12 and 16 months financing to get the deal going, right? So you need to get the deal cooking. As soon as you buy, as soon as you go under contract, that's when you start obviously underwriting this thing and figuring out what it's going to take for you to at least be able to create enough value so that you can go from a from a bridge loan to a permanent loan, which is the whole bridge to perm concept. That's because the interest rate on a, on a bridge loan is so much higher if you can't perform and get out of that deal within a certain amount of time. So obviously a bridge lender is more than happy to let you fall into that area where you start to get past your 12-month period and they know they're going to rake it in on the interest. So obviously the goal is to set a timer for yourself and say, okay, I need to perform by this date. I need to convert this loan into a permanent loan, meaning you'll go to a conventional lender and obviously refinance that debt. Hopefully you've created some value. And now when you get an appraisal done, now you see that the value has increased by this much because maybe you created some equity by increasing the income, lowering your expenses. So you're always trying to figure out that ratio and find the happy medium there so that you're obviously winning. So a lot to say, a lot to do, a lot to plan, a lot to consider. Who are you? Are you the investor that likes to have money working or are you an investor that likes to be right in the middle half of your money's out working the other half is still stashed away in the bank in case you have a, an emergency or maybe that's just the way you grew up thinking that not all your money should be out working are you risk adverse do you like to put in as least as money as possible which would probably present a whole different slew of problems and probably limits your opportunities to a very very select few types then there's obviously the casual investor who says, hey, I'm happy to throw money behind you if you know what you're doing. So that's typically what we call syndication, right? You find a syndicator who can raise money, put a deal together and promise returns. There's called preps, obviously of certain returns, get certain returns based on the amount of capital being put in. And ideally those are, those have worked in the past. That's been a very successful model for a lot of people. But you got to know what you're doing, right? Especially if you're the syndicator. You, you just, you can't go out there and do anything on your own if you haven't proven the model yet. So do a couple, three or four on your own. Then you can say, hey, I'm ready to show people what I can do. I'm going to start raising money because this is the typical performance that I'm able to end up giving back on my deals. This is what I end up usually on my returns. And if it all looks good and healthy and this person has a proven track record, usually they have a lot of success raising capital. But... Beyond that, if you're an individual and you have your own money and you say to yourself, okay, I want to do this. I'm going to consult with a broker. I'm going to consult with my banker who knows how to structure debt and things like that. And then you start to piece everything together. Now you go chase the deal. Now you find a deal. You find something that presents itself as a, as a very good opportunity or something that you can wrap your head around. What, what does that outlook look like to you? What do you, what are we doing at that, in that juncture there? Are we, Buying something with a heavy initial capital investment? Are we putting a lot of money down? Are we putting 35% down, borrowing 65% through traditional structures? Or are we going bridge to perm where we can actually borrow a little more money? And plan is to convert that deal into a permanent financing type deal with new debt 12 months down the road. Once you get into the deal or once you're actually underwriting these deals, it, it definitely helps to have a good understanding of what a model for each investment vehicle looks like. A lot of these models are used today by brokers and 
you know, seasoned investors who underwrite different criteria, especially on the metrics that typically most investors like to underwrite with. So you find metrics in this business, such as your price per square foot, which is likely the most important metric for most investors, only because your square footage really does dictate, obviously on price, when you buy a building, it definitely does tell you the amount of money being put towards an asset. The higher the price per foot, if you're buying, let's just say, uh, a 10 unit building, right? Let's put it in perspective. Buy a 10 unit building, they're all one bedrooms. Each bedroom is, or each unit is 900 square feet, but they're all one bedrooms. So you know you're going to only get income from one bedroom units. So if you're paying a high price per foot on one bedroom units, but you're only going to be able to rent at a max of a one bedroom unit, you might find yourself saying, hey, I might be overpaying for this deal because the, the income potential, obviously you're going to hit a what's called a pro forma number. That's the number that's used to say, hey, in the market, rent it right now based on improvements, based on this and that, that's going to be my potential rent ceiling. And that's what I need to know going into this deal. But if you're in a one bedroom, typically the variation from, let's say, you know, two, three, 400 square feet on a one bedroom for somebody living in, let's call it Hollywood right now, those, those rents are about the same. And if they're remodeled to the same cost and to the same condition, let's just say they're completely remodeled. You know, you've got the same amenities, you've got the same fixtures, finishes, everything looks identical, but they're 300 square feet in difference. You bought that at a metric for whatever that square footage is, but you also look at the price per, per unit, right? So price per unit is, okay, I paid $200,000 for 10 units, so it's 200000 per door, you pay $2 million. But if you paid at a metric where it's $300 a square foot at $900 or 900 square feet, then you look at that metric and you say to yourself, wow, I think I might have overpaid because it's going to yield the same rent whether those units were 600 square feet or 900 square feet. So that, that could throw you off, and a lot of investors are really particular about looking at a price per square foot which is very indicative of what you're going to get for a property in terms of what a rent value is if you renovate to a certain specific style or certain specific condition. That's one of the important metrics that a lot of people seem to overlook. But sometimes if you just need to get your foot in the door and get into a, an investment just to get going, then sometimes that might not be the first metric you use. But that's usually a, a more seasoned veteran type of metric that ends up being like your primary go-to. So you have your price per square foot, then you have your price per door, which is your price per unit that you pay. And again, that metric has a lot of weight to it if you're buying a building that has, let's say, different units, right? Unit, different unit mix. Unit mix being a one-bedroom, two-bedroom, a studio, et cetera, et cetera. So if you buy a combination of one-bedroom and two-bedroom units in a 10-unit building, then that price per square foot and that price per door become a lot more relative because... Now, you know, for example, a 900 square foot two bedroom will bring in two bedroom rent as opposed to a 900 square foot one bedroom. So they intertwine with each other. But then again, at the same time, depending on what metric you're able to make the deal make sense at, you're going to make a decision based on specifically that metric because you know that your rent yield after renovations can bring you in a lot more if you have more bedrooms. That's just 
that that's just par for the course. That's how that works. Then you have your cap rate, right? Which is your NOI divided by your purchase price. So that's one of the interesting ones. That's more of what bankers and, and investors that have different ideas of their investment grade for what they buy typically use. So your net operating income, once you deduct all your costs after whatever your gross income is, that's what you're left over with. And that's your net operating income. That pays for management. It pays for everything. So look at that ratio. If the cap rate is obviously higher than whatever the bank is, you're beating the bank rate. If you have money down, then you have a cash on cash uh, rate, rate of return because that's different. That obviously involves you putting money down towards the investment. So that might look like a little bit different of a ratio, but again, we'll we'll dive deeper into each one of these down the road. So you know, sometimes people look at gross income as a metric, which I don't think that that really serves too much of a purpose in terms of today's investor. But maybe 20, 30 years ago, that was more of a solid indicator of what you're buying because I think at that point the rent escalation wasn't as high as it's been in the last decade or so. So right now we're just entering. A new period where, you know, rents have still skyrocketed in most markets, especially most metros. Right now, we're going to probably see either a plateau or some sort of stabilization just because of all things going on right now in the market. And just globally, as you guys all know, obviously in finance markets and the financial markets, they directly affect real estate and vice versa. There's, There's a lot of things there that obviously, like I was mentioning earlier, if you're dealing with anything that's related to liquidity or, or money supplies and capitals and banks lending money, that definitely affects how business is done in real estate because that affects if people can refinance, that affects people being able to purchase investment properties. That That's going to change how the underwriting works for a bank. Bank needs to see that you can cover your debt service ratio. There's a There's all these tiny little specific points that you need to understand in your business as an investor, and if you're looking to really, really jump into this thing, head if you're going to go headfirst into investing into some sort of real estate investment, rentals, you know, commercial real estate, these are just some of the points that we're going to go over. And I just thought I'd give you guys a brief overview of what's to come. I'm going to have some guests. We're going to go over it. I'll probably bring on people that are directly working with me. I have a lot of other information that I'd like to cover. There's certain things in the city of LA that I'm very specific to that I'm really, really going to touch on. But I hope you guys are ready for what's going to be coming on to the to the episodes moving forward. I hope you guys have questions and comments. Feel free to leave them below. I'm going to definitely be doing more in-depth an- analysis of deals. We'll even probably simulate some deals where you guys can follow along at home. I'll give you guys some metrics. We'll practice how to underwrite. We'll practice how to do comparisons to deals. We'll look at all of the metrics. We'll look at the underwriting structures. And they'll eventually learn how to do a back of the envelope quick modeling and underwriting for a deal, right? Uh, one of these simple things that you can calculate based on certain numbers that are given to you, certain metrics, be able to say, hey, this deal makes sense. I can make this deal work. My debt limit is this. My capital, my capital investment could be up to this. I can fit into this deal. This deal doesn't make sense, et cetera, et cetera. So I hope you guys enjoyed the very first episode of the Keeping It Real Estate in LA podcast. 
And I hope to talk to you guys soon. If you guys have any questions or comments, please feel free to leave them in the comments. And I do respond to everybody. And if you guys have any topics you want to cover or hear about more, please leave those as well. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks, guys. And enjoy the rest of your day.